Amen. Well, Jesus is alive and he's coming back again. And we know that because that's what we've, we've been told by God himself in the pages of scripture. And so we're going to go back to the book of Daniel this morning and learn some more about the return of Jesus Christ. And so take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 9. And uh, last week we had the privilege of looking at this uh, hidden gem, if you will, uh, of a prayer, Daniel's prayer uh, for God to return his people uh, to the promised land uh, after 70 years of exile. And most of us uh, uh, don't think of this prayer as uh, up there in the survey says, what are the top five prayers ever prayed in this, uh, recorded in Scripture. Uh, this is normally not one that would make that list, but hopefully after leaving last week, you realize, wow, this is like, a, this is a hidden gem of a prayer to hear this godly man pour out his heart before the Lord and praising the Lord and confessing his sin before the Lord and then pleading with uh, God, um, petitioning for his promises to uh, be fulfilled, the, the things that he promised to the nation of Israel uh, to come to fruition. And so, um, as we learned last week, in answer to this prayer, uh, God revealed to Daniel this amazing uh, interpretation of a previous vision that he had already had, and we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 20, and so I'll start reading this morning uh, in verse 20, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Again, what vision? Well, it was the vision that uh, God gave him back in Daniel chapter 8 of that, uh, that mighty ram, that mad goat, and that menacing horn. Uh, and there was uh, some interpretation that Daniel or that Gabriel gave uh, to Daniel um, there in verses 15 through 27 or 26, I should say. But then notice how Daniel chapter 8, verse 27 uh, ends here. It says, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days, and I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. What that means is while Gabriel explained some of what he saw, apparently there was a whole lot more uh, that Daniel wanted to know and understand about that vision of uh, the, the, the ram and the, the goat and this, this horn, but there was no one to explain it. And so the context is he immediately goes into this time of prayer, and as a result, uh, or as a result of this time of prayer, God answers the prayer by giving him greater understanding that he lacked um, into this vision in verses 24 through 27. And uh, I just make that point because I have always considered this to be a separate vision, another vision uh, that God gave Daniel, but it really wasn't. It was just greater insight into the previous vision that he was given in, in Daniel chapter 8. And so let's look at this, this, this understanding or this insight that he gave him uh, in answer to his prayer. Verse 24 
70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress." Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations uh, are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come... Uh, one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Father, we uh, are truly amazed by this prophecy that you reveal to Daniel in answer to his prayer. And where we confess just at an initial reading, it seems like a bunch of nonsense. Um, it's really a... a hard for us to to make sense of what is going on here, but we know that your spirit inspired uh, this text and and will also illuminate our minds to understand it. And so grant us grace today, Lord, that we would not just see a bunch of jumbled up numbers and figures and timelines, but that we would actually uh, understand the practical implications of this prophecy for our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you noticed how, no matter what's going on in the world, the news seems to center most often around the Middle East, particularly on the nation of Israel, a country smaller than the state of New Jersey. Have you ever wondered why that is? Well, if you know your Bibles at all, you know why. Because Israel is God's chosen nation And ever since he elected them and established them and covenanted with them through their patriarch Abraham way back in Genesis, all the other nations of the world have sought to oppress them and destroy them. And yet Israel has survived despite the many attacks and exiles and and holocausts that they have endured throughout the centuries. The Bible says that Israel will play the central role in the future of the world and that the land of Palestine will serve as the battleground for the final war on earth, World War III, if you will. God has made promises to Israel that have yet to be fulfilled. And in the same way that God was faithful to fulfill the promises he made to punish Israel when they sinned or disobeyed him, he also will be faithful to fulfill the promises that he made to bless them and to cause them to be an eternal kingdom. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 89, Psalm 89, verse 30, talking about Israel. Psalm 89, verse 30, if his sons forsake my law, talking about the sons of David, and do not walk in my judgments, that they violate my statutes, and do not keep my commandments, that I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. 
My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendant shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. And so here God, in his own words, is promising to fulfill his covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, uh, the covenant that he made, the promise he made to David that there would be a descendant of his who would reign on the throne in Jerusalem forever and ever and ever. And we know ultimately that will be fulfilled in the person or was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And notice in that psalm, God's basically saying, listen, despite what Israel has done, or even will do, even kill my own son, I will never forsake them, ever. I'll never forsake the nation of Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22 says, The Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Hey, this isn't about Israel, it's about God's name. That God is a faithful God, a God who makes promises and he never breaks them, he keeps them. Jeremiah 31 verse 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundation of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. In other words, you can't measure the foundation of the earth or search out below. That's an impossibility and also it's an impossibility that I would cast off the nation of Israel as my offspring. Jeremiah 33, verse 24, have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying the two families which the Lord chose, he has rejected them, some claiming that God has rejected Israel, thus they despise my people, no longer are they as a nation in their sight, thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Another, he's, again, he's talking about the impossibility of him rejecting his people. He says, but I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. And then the apostle Paul in the New Testament, famously said this in Romans 11.1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. May it never be. And the book of Daniel provides some of the best evidence in the Bible that God has a future plan for Israel as a nation, specifically in these last five chapters, um, chapters Uh, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that in the beginning of chapter 8, Daniel stopped writing in Aramaic and shifted back to writing in Hebrew since the remaining prophecies in this book uh, relate to the Jews rather than the Gentiles. And we said that chapter 2 through chapter 7 were all about the times of the Gentiles and, and really the history of the world according to the Gentile nations. And now he's focused back on what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. And ultimately, how we view Israel determines how we interpret biblical prophecy, especially prophecies about the end times. Well, let me say that again, because that's an important statement you need to uh, understand this morning. Ultimately, how we view Israel determines how we interpret biblical prophecy, especially prophecies 
about the end times. Now, I realize that some of you uh, sitting here this morning have already received a wealth of teaching uh, on end times prophecy through sermons that you've heard or books you've read. Um, You could actually teach um, the 70 weeks uh, uh, prophecy here in in, in Daniel chapter 9. Others of you have little or, or no exposure to any teaching on eschatology, the doctrine of future things. Um, I'm also uh, aware that some of you may be covenantal in your theology. Others of you may be dispensational. And some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) And you may be sitting here feeling like I did when I was sitting in my first class on my first day in seminary. And no lie, the professor was up there waxing eloquent on some subject that I had no clue what he was talking about. And then a student sitting next to me raised his hand and asked him what the implications were of what he was teaching as it related to dispensationalism dispensationalism and covenantalism. And I'm like, I'm toast. Because I, I don't even understand the question let alone what the guy's saying up front. I don't even understand the the guy's question. And I really thought, what have I gotten myself into? I mean, I am way in over my head here. And, 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 And so with that in mind, okay, understand that's where some of you may be. That's where I was at one point. Uh, in my understanding of these things, but I, I want to just try to provide for you a layman's understanding of, of, this, of this issue that we refer to as dispensationalism and covenantalism, okay? So just hang with me for a few minutes uh, and, and listen to this because it really uh, is the key to understanding um, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, And this is very foundational to how we are going to interpret what we're going to see here in this this text. And and again, it's important, I think, that, that, that all of us have a good basic grasp of these two, what they are essentially theological systems, if you will, because they both lead to very different conclusions regarding the end times and this text in particular. For example, in regards to the rapture, do you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture? In other words, it's going to happen, the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation, or do you believe in a mid-tribulational rapture, that somewhere halfway through the rapture, uh, through the tribulation, the church will be raptured, or maybe you believe in a post-tribulational rapture, that Christ is going to return at the end of the tribulation, or maybe you believe the rapture and the second coming are one and the same. Are you premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial? You're like, I don't know. I thought I was just a Christian. I just came here, you know, to, with my Bible. And um, well, the point is, do you believe that Christ will return and set up His kingdom on earth and literally reign for literally reign for a thousand years, or will society get better and better and eventually become Christianized, and then Christ will return and the church will present? Basically, him, his kingdom. That's the postmillennial view. Or maybe you think the reference to a thousand years in Revelation 20 is just figurative, and there will be no literal thousand year reign of Christ, that the kingdom of God is present right now, here and now, uh, in the church age. Again, all these interpretive decisions really come down to what you believe about the nation of Israel. 
And that's the major difference or distinction between dispensationalism and covenantalism. Both of these uh, are simply different ways of understanding and explaining God's plan of redemption through the ages. So let's talk about them one at a time. Let's start with dispensationalism. Dispensationalism proposes that God unfolded his plan of redemption through seven dispensations. So easy, dispensationalism, talking about dispensations, dispensations or stages of revelation. In other words, God revealed himself kind of slowly but surely over the centuries and, and related to mankind in different, at, in different ways and at different times. And so there was the, the dispensation of innocence. There's basically seven uh, dispensations in classic dispensationalism. There is the stage of uh, innocence before the fall. There was the conscience, the, 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 the dispensation of conscience from Adam to Noah, the dispensation of government from Noah to Babel, uh, the dispensation of promise from Abraham to Moses, the dispensation of the law, uh, Moses to Christ, the dispensation of grace, that's Pentecost to the rapture, that's what we're living in right now. And then there's the seventh and final dispensation, the millennial kingdom. So that's essentially dispensationalism. It views God's plan of redemption according to these seven stages or seven dispensations of revelation. Covenantalism, on the other hand, proposes that God structured his plan of redemption around two fundamental covenants. The pre-fall covenant of works and the post-fall covenant of grace. The covenant of works was the promise given to mankind by God in the garden that perfect obedience would be rewarded with eternal life. Well, as you know, that didn't go so well. (laughs) And when Adam sinned and broke this initial covenant, mankind was condemned to death, so God in his mercy instituted the covenant of grace, in which he promised forgiveness for sin and eternal life to everyone who would acknowledge their sin and place their faith in the coming Redeemer, Genesis 3.15, right? The, your seed will, uh, talking to, the, to Eve, God said, your seed will come and, and crush Satan's head, right? Crush the serpent's head. That was the first uh, promise, if you will, of the coming of Christ. So you have these seven dispensations or these two covenants. Take your pick, right? Um, but besides these seven dispensations and two covenants, the main difference between these two theological systems is the way they interpret Scripture as a whole. Dispensationalists hold to a literal interpretation of Scripture, whereas covenantalists hold to a more allegorical or spiritual method of interpretation. And this is what ultimately distinguishes dispensationalism and covenantalism when it comes to their view of Israel. Now, this is the most important part, so listen carefully. If I've already lost you, come back to me, okay? Dispensationalism sees a clear distinction between Israel and the church. And it believes that all the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament will be literally fulfilled to them at some point in the future. Covenantalism, on the other hand, sees no distinction between Israel and the church. The church is the new Israel. That's what they would describe it as. The church is the new Israel. It's replaced Israel or we as the church are a continuation of Israel, and all the Old Testament promises that God made to the nation of Israel are being fulfilled figuratively or spiritually to us who are living in the church age. You got that? Now, 
let me be clear, okay, neither of these theological perspectives could or should be characterized as heresy. Um, I, I don't want us to be that kind of church that all the dispensationalists sit on one side and they look down their noses all the covenants on this side and all the covenants over here, you know, throwing rocks at the dispensationalists, okay? This is, these are merely man's best attempt to organize or systematize or arrange the redemptive flow of Scripture. It's, it's just, uh, what is the best way to, to, to see and to explain the big picture of the Bible? It's basically what these two systems are about. Now, it's interesting, over the years maybe in the last uh, 20 years or so, uh, we've seen some movement on both sides of the argument. So you've got dispensationalists over here, you've got covenantalists over here, and it's as if they've been staring at, e- at, e- at each other for centuries and, and refusing to blink. And again, this is just my perspective. Well, um, I don't know exact year, but... Uh, the, the professors at Dallas Seminary were the first to blink. Because if you know, Dallas Seminary is probably one of the most well-known dispensational seminaries in the world. And there was a couple guys there that began to give some credence to what the covenantalists were saying and saying, hey, you know what? There are some similarities between Israel and the church. And there are some passages in the New Testament that describe us as the church as if we are the same as Israel. And so what started happening was this, this classic dispensationalism began to move uh, more towards the center. It's what's called progressive dispensationalism. And, uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I thought that was, that was, a, good, that was a good move. That was, a, that was some good progress. That was admitting that there are some areas of, of, of continuity here that we can't deny between the Old and the New Testaments, between Israel and the church. Well, uh, then later on, and this was more recent, the covenantalists said, well, you know what? Appreciate that. And you're right. There, there's definitely some areas of discontinuity. There's some definite differences between Israel and the church. They're not the same. And so the covenantalists started saying, hey, let's acknowledge some of that, and let's kind of move this way a little bit. And this is what's called New Covenant Theology, um, and, and so here we see progressive dispensationalism, we see new covenant theology, both seeking common ground, if you, are, if you will, in the areas of continuity and discontinuity in the Old and New Testaments. I've got a book on my shelf, my favorite book about this issue, it's just simply called Continuity and Discontinuity. So who's right? Are the dispensationalists right or the covenant, covenantalists right? Yes. Okay, when it comes to the, the Israel and the church, it's like well, they, they, you, you can see there's some, there's some truth in the, the continuity of Scripture, that's the covenantalist, and then the discontinuity in the Scriptures, that's what dispensational highlights. Uh, but again, all that to say, these are secondary issues that, must, that, that we shouldn't part fellowship over as long as we believe the same essential truths about the gospel. In other words, how a person is saved from their sin. That's what matters most. And, and as far as I know, the, the, the covenants that I read and I listen to, that I appreciate and look up to, um, they believe the same as I do as a dispensationalist about the gospel and how a person is truly saved. 
And so guess what? I can have great fellowship with them, even though we disagree about maybe some interpretive things in the scriptures, and we disagree about the, the, the difference between the, the church and Israel, Israel and the church. We disagree on things like infant baptism being a somehow kind of a, a new covenant picture of circumcision in the Old Testament. That's just messed up, okay? But I disagree with that, but that's okay. I still love and appreciate uh, these men. I think a great example, and I'm thankful that I've had this example, are two of my heroes, uh, R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. And if you listen to these guys, you, you watch these guys, you've been to any of their, their conferences, right? You know that they're on totally opposite sides of the fence uh, on this issue. R.C. Sproul um, and Ligonier Ministries is clearly covenantal in its theology. And John MacArthur and Grace to you and his ministry is clearly dispensational. But guess what? They speak at each other's conferences. And, and John goes and speaks at the Ligonier Conference, and R.C. goes and speaks at the Shepherds Conference, and, and, and they're best of friends. Why? Because they know this is a secondary issue. And they agree with what matters most, and that's the gospel, the doctrine of salvation. And so... If you haven't figured it out already, we don't talk a whole lot about this here at Lakeside Bible Church because we've never wanted to make it an issue because we think it's a secondary issue. But I think it's important that you know where I stand, and I would consider myself a progressive dispensationalist who believes that the nation of Israel has a future in the plan of God and that he will fulfill the covenant promises that he made to her in the Old Testament. And that's not, not only what I believe, but this is where our church stands doctrinally. This is what we teach based on our doctrinal statement. And some of you that maybe have come to our church in recent years, maybe from more of a uh, covenantal background, you know, we're kind of an enigma. Because maybe what drew you to the church was uh, our, that, that we sound and feel very reformed in our soteriology, our doctrine of salvation. And, and so we come across like a reformed church. But then when you start hearing us talk about end times and about Israel and about baptism, believer's baptism, you're like, wait a minute. Well, what is this kind of freak of nature, this theological freak show that's going on here that it seems like it's pulling dispensationalism and covenantalism together and there's, there's some crossover here. And the point is exactly. Um, what are they, as Calvin said, even the best theologian is only 80% right. And so you just have to admit that. And so we're trying to look at the scriptures um, and interpret the scriptures literally, historically, grammatically uh, in their context. And, and, uh, and, and if a passage, you know, says what it says and it makes us sound like a dispensationalist, then hey, guess what? That's where we are. But there's also some passages that you might listen to and go, man, you kind of sound like you're a covenantalist. Well, I'm just saying this is what that passage says. And so hopefully um, that's as clear as mud now for all of you. But uh, I think it's helpful that we talk about these kind of things, um, at least on a high level, okay? And uh, hopefully that's helpful and and it gives you uh, at least uh, some past to go on. I think bottom line, where this comes into play is you just, just got to know who's in what camp because it really de- will determine what you hear from their preaching. If you go to their conference, if you read their commentary or their book, you just have to know ahead of time how they're going to interpret certain things. And I have probably half the commentaries that I have on the book of Daniel that I've been using uh, in our study. Half of them are written 
from a dispensational perspective and the other half are written from a covenantal perspective. And, and frankly, when it comes to uh, this latter half of Daniel, um, the covenantalist commentaries have stayed on my shelf um, because I don't agree with the way they interpret the, the, the back half of the book of Daniel. Now, the front half, when it was just talking about the stories of Daniel, and I gleaned tons of, of truth, and I was quoting, actually, a lot from one particular covenantal, uh, covenantal theologian uh, on the front end of our series um, because I thought he had some great insights into uh, the stories of Daniel. But now, um, really, all that to say, what you're about to hear today is an unashamedly dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial interpretation of Daniel's 70-week prophecy, okay? So now you know where, you're gonna, where we stand here, all right? Now, th- this amazing prophecy here in verses 24 through 27 came as a direct, immediate answer to Daniel's impassioned prayer of confession and petition for God to keep his promise and restore his exiled people back to their homeland. Again, this is not a separate vision um, it, it, he was pleading for greater insight or longing for greater insight uh, into the previous vision he had in chapter 8. And as we saw last week, he was studying the prophecies of Jeremiah, maybe to get some more insight into what in the world is all this goat thing and the ram and the horn. And so he, he went back to the scriptures. He was being a good Berean, if you will, and uh, before the Bereans were the Bereans, right? And he was studying the prophecy of Jeremiah, and he discovered that the prophet hadn't just foretold the overthrow of God's people by the Babylonians, but he had also predicted that their exile in Babylon would last how many years? 70 years. And so based on God's clear promises, uh, the fact that the Medes and Persians under King Cyrus had just overthrown Babylon convinced Daniel that the end of their captivity was near and they were about to be liberated and that stimulated him to pray. And again, Gabriel was dispatched here by God with an answer to his prayer. And by the way, he was laboring in prayer to the point of exhaustion, it says. In my extreme weariness, Again, a great example of how passionate we should be in prayer. But, but Daniel was, 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 was so passionate about the fulfillment of God's plan for Israel regarding their 70 years of captivity, God revealed to him the rest of his, his future plan to deliver Israel from a far greater captivity through the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So God, it says here that, uh, what, you are highly esteemed. I came to tell you that you are highly esteemed. In other words, you're, you're well thought of. You're highly regarded in heaven by God and the angels. And uh, he was looking for someone, essentially, looking for someone to entrust this, this most significant, one of the most significant revelations that has ever been given to any prophet in the scriptures. And God's like, Daniel's my man. I can trust him with this. He's already fired up about this stuff. He's already interested. And so he gave him this revelation. Now, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, has been called the backbone of biblical prophecy. In other words, it it ties everything else together. The same way we have a spine, a backbone, and it kind of ties everything in our body together, right? We, We couldn't exist without a backbone. It's essential, for, for our body to work and function. And, and so in the same way, these, these four verses are like the backbone of 
all the prophecy in Scripture because it, it really holds the key to unlocking many of the mysterious visions and dreams here, not only in the book of Daniel, but also in the book of Revelation. And granted, it's highly complex, it's a, and yet it's extremely, uh, extremely precise prophecy. And I told you last week, um, you could liken this prophecy to a math word problem. Anybody remember those math word problems when you were in school? Some of you still have to deal with those math. I'll pray for you, okay? Because I'll tell you what, th- those, I mean, I hated math word problems. I'm like, hey, I'm here to learn math, not to read and figure this stuff out. And, you know, so you remember, this would be a classic um, math word problem. An airplane leaves Los Angeles for Denver at a speed of 440 miles per hour. 30 minutes later, a plane going from Denver to Los Angeles leaves Denver, which is 850 miles away at a speed of 470 miles per hour. When they meet, how far are they from Denver? You're just like, what? I'm a lot better with simple math problems. Like, if you have $20 and your wife has $5, how much money does she have? $25, right? I can figure that stuff out. So no kidding, I actually pulled out my calculator and I had it next to my Bible and commentaries as I was trying to figure this thing out, okay? So, without any further ado, let's look at this math word problem in 15 minutes, okay? You ready? Notice what it says. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, the Hebrew word for weeks here is a generic term meaning seven or units of seven. So you've got 70 units of seven, all right? And typically, when we think of a unit of seven as seven days, right? We think of it as a week, a literal week. In fact, in chapter 10, uh, that's how it's used. Um, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is verse 1 of 10, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar, and the message was true, and one of the great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. So what does that mean? Literally, he was mourning for three weeks. Um, But the context of chapter 9 is 70 years of captivity. We're talking about uh, that, 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 uh, we were talking about that last week. That's what this whole prayer was about. That was the prophecy was all about in Jeremiah. Okay, so it makes sense to understand the week here, 70 weeks, not as weeks, but as seven years or a set of seven years. And we're about to see here the fulfillment, the historic fulfillment of this first part of this prophecy shows that, that weeks are weeks of years. If they were just days, the prophecy would be meaningless since nothing of significance occurred during that time frame. And so what we're saying here is that each week represents seven years. It's a play on words. And so you've got 70 weeks divided into three time periods. Notice, I'll continue to read verse 25. So you are now to know and discern that from the issuing of decree to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks. In other words, seven weeks of seven years and 62 weeks. And it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. And then verse 27 and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. I'm not talking about for seven days. He's talking about for seven years. 
But in the middle of the week, the middle of those seven years, he will be put a stop to sacrifice and gain an offering. So you've got seven, 70 weeks divided into three time periods. You've got seven weeks, which equals 49 years. You've got 62 weeks, which equals 434 years. And you've got one remaining week, which equals seven years, which totals up to 70 weeks or 490 years. Okay? I told you you'd feel like you're in math class, right? You're starting to break out in hives, some of you. Okay? Like this is uh, all too familiar. But, but notice what it says here uh, in verse 24. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. In other words, we have this, this span of 490 years, okay, that have been decreed for your people and your holy city to what? And, and, and during, so during these 70 weeks, this time period, the following six things will happen. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you've got these six things that will happen. There's really two sets of three accomplishments each. So the first three, the finishing the transgression, the making an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, have to do, all have to do with the removal of sin. And I think these were initially fulfilled at Christ's first coming through his work on the cross. Now the second three, or the last three things, um, all have to do with the restoration of righteousness. Um, to bring in, 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 in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, to bring an end to all of this vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place, talking about the temple in Jerusalem. And I, I believe these last three things will, will take place at Christ's second coming during his millennial reign. Because really those last three things haven't actually happened uh, completely uh, and so all these, I think, will ultimately or completely be filled at the end of the 70 weeks. Again, look up, okay? All that God has promised to Israel will ultimately be fulfilled when Christ returns and establishes a literal earthly kingdom and reigns for a thousand years in Jerusalem. This is going to be the climax of God's program for the nation of Israel, his plan of redemption, if you will, uh, when he will make good on all the covenants that he made with Israel in the Old Testament, and they will fully enjoy the finished work of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Are the Jews, is the nation of Israel fully enjoying the righteous reign of Jesus Christ, their Messiah? No, not yet, but they will. What does it mean that, they, that, that this during this time they will anoint the most holy place. Well, at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ, the temple that's described in Ezekiel 40 through 44 will be consecrated in Jerusalem, and God's glory will return. Remember how the God's glory left, right? And that temple was considered Ichabod. Well, God's glory will return in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, go on to verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So a total of 69 weeks. Seven weeks plus 62, that's 69 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, there was basically four decrees of Persian kings regarding the Jews. Cyrus made a decree that they could return to to, to the promised land. 
Um, Darius made a decree that they could uh, restore the temple and, and other things. Artaxerxes also um, made a decree regarding the temple. But uh, specifically, the decree, I think, that, that, that Gabriel was referring to here was the decree of Artaxerxes that we find in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, where he allowed the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem under the direction of Nehemiah. Again, you can reference that, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. But this was uh, in the year 444 or 445 B.C., and there's some disagreement among Bible scholars what's the better year, 444 or 445 B.C. But he says, until that dec- or from that point, that's when the clock starts ticking, if you will, these, 40, uh, these 69 years starts ticking, when, when, when Artaxerxes makes that decree until the Messiah uh, or the Prince comes, until Messiah the Prince, of course, that's the coming of Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so between the time of Artaxerxes' decree and the coming of Christ, there will be, again, seven weeks, that's 49 years, plus 62 weeks, that's 434 years, 69 weeks total, or 483 years. Now, I think that Jerusalem was rebuilt during that first seven, week, seven weeks, or that first, uh, those first 49 years. Now, we know you say, wait a minute, I thought Nehemiah rebuilt the walls in 52 days. Well, that's true, but it also took close to 50 years to reconstruct the entire city with its plaza, its moat, all that kind of stuff. And so you've got the first seven years, and then what about the second 62 weeks, if you will, or the 434 years? This is where, you just have to trust me on this, you can go home And do the math yourself, okay? But when you do the math and you take into account leap years, um, errors in the calendar, the change from B.C. to A.D., if you count forward 483 years, and this is where it gets all confusing, okay? 483 years, you can't just say times 365 because the Jewish calendar was based on a 360-day year. So you have to take that into account. So again, it's all this... Very complex math going on here. Uh, the point is, it, the, the total is 173,880 days. That's what we're talking about. So if you count forward 173,880 days or 483 years from March 14th, 444 BC, when Nehemiah received the degree of Artaxerxes to rebuild the walls, you land on April 6th. A.D. 32, some say 33, some say 30, again, depending on the, how you number uh, the, the, the death of Christ. But we know that's in the zone, right, of the end of Christ. And, and what that comes to is the exact day that Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem and officially presented himself to the nation of Israel as our Messiah. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, that's what this is all about. It's exactly what this is all about. That, that in this prophecy, Daniel was able to pinpoint the exact day that Jesus would come in his triumphal entry and present himself as the Messiah to Israel. And, and some scholars consider this passage to be the single greatest evidence of divine inspiration of the scriptures because, it, it, again, it precisely predicted the coming of Jesus Christ. Does your head hurt yet? 
You can do all this research on your own and, 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 and do all this math. If you're into math, you, 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 you have fun, okay? But notice what happens here. Verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. But then notice verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Obviously, this is a reference to Christ's crucifixion after 62 weeks, which is really at the end of the 69th week. Jesus' life will be cut off by being nailed to a Roman cross, which is exactly, exactly what happened. And then notice, it says, and the people, verse 26, of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. The people of the prince who is to come are the Romans who God used to judge the nation of Israel for crucifying his son by destroying Jerusalem 40 years later in AD 70. And again, the city was leveled. It's, it's not one stone of the temple was left on another, just like Jesus had predicted in Matthew chapter 24. It was as if a flood had just rushed through. We've all seen pictures of that, uh, maybe in our own backyard, right? That, that nothing is where it was. And, and that was the picture of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem as punishment for murdering the, their Messiah. And since then... As you know, Israel has been plagued by all kinds of wars and persecutions and holocausts, and, 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 and that is what was prophesied here. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. Now, in between, in the white space there, between verses 26 and 27, there is a gap, a time gap, okay, between the 69th week and the 70th week, which, again, you might write in there if you have a pen and you could fit it in the little space, the white space there, you could just say the church age, which extends from Pentecost to the rapture. We are living in this parenthesis in God's program, if you will, and, and Christ anticipated this interval when he prophesied about the establishment of the church, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. Um, and this... This establishing of the church necessitated the setting aside of the nation of Israel for a season in order for a new chapter in God's program to be initiated. Now, this is what Jesus himself said in Matthew 21, verse 42. Did you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And again, this is an interval in which we're living that was never mentioned or I would even say anticipated in the Old Testament. I don't know that Daniel was able to understand this as, as well as we are because we have history on our side, if you will. This was a secret hidden in the mind of God from the foundation of the world until he chose to reveal it to Paul and the other apostles. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 3, that there was this mystery of the church, that, that God appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles, and I'm here to tell you about this mystery called the church age. And so we're living in this gap during which time Israel has been partially blinded, if you will, and temporarily set aside to give opportunity for all the elect Gentiles uh, throughout the world to come to Christ. 
And, and if you want to study this, I think the best evidence of that there's a future for Israel and what's going on and how the church and Israel fit together, you need to read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11 talk about uh, the church in Israel. And they keep it very distinct. And, and basically what it says is that, hey, this is the time when, when God is grafting in us, Gentiles, into the vine uh, of Israel. And yet there is a future for Israel, and Israel will come around um, in, in the future. And so verse 7, or excuse me, verse 27 here, uh, talks about the remaining week of seven years, which will clearly be fulfilled in or during the Great Tribulation. It's called the Great Tribulation because uh, Jesus prophesied that it would be a great time, a time of great distress, Matthew 24, verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation, tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So notice what he says here in verse 27, and he will make a firm covenant. Who's he? Well, it's the, the prince who is to come, back in verse 26. That's what he's talking about here, the prince who is to come, who will be the head of the revived Roman Empire. We talked about this, the, the, the confederacy of 10 European nations, potentially. Um, and we've already identified this prince who is to come as the Antichrist. He's the little horn that we've seen in chapter 7 uh, and also chapter 8. And this anti-Messiah, if you will, will rise to power at the beginning of the tribulation period. And notice it says he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. This world ruler will pose as a prince of peace, a savior of sorts, and he will offer hope to end, end the crisis in the Middle East, which I'm sure whatever that is, it's, there's always a crisis in the Middle East, right? And he'll sign some sort of peace treaty with Israel that will guarantee Israel's safety in their homeland. And this suggests that, that Israel may not be able to protect themselves at that time from outside enemies and they will need his help. But notice, in the middle of the seven years, the deceptive prince will turn hostile toward Israel. It says, in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. And so, we've already talked about this uh, abomination of desolation. Apparently, the sacrificial system will be reinstated or reinstituted. And by the way, it's interesting, if you travel to Israel, they will tell you that the, that the Jewish nation is all ready to reinstitute the sacrificial system. As soon as they can get their hands back on the Temple Mount, they are ready to, to re-engage in the sacrificial system and start it up all over again. And so it's very interesting to see that this is probably what has happened, that the sacrificers, somehow they've regained the, the, the holy temple there, the, the, which, the, the, of course, the, the Muslims control now. Um, they will have re-engaged that sacrificial system, and, and he will bring that to an end and force the world to worship him. We already saw this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, Revelation 13, 8. Uh, he will want to be worshipped there in the temple of, of Jerusalem. 
And this will be what is referred to as the abomination of desolation. He will desecrate the sacred temple by setting up an idolatrous image and command that he be worshipped, and he will persecute and execute those who refuse to bow down to him. Look at chapter 11, verse 31. talks about this. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and, he will, and they will set up the abomination of of desolation. Chapter 12, verse 11, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, quotes Daniel. Um, Jesus quoted Daniel regarding the abomination of desolation. Revelation chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, talk about how people will be uh, persecuted and killed if they refuse to worship the beast, the Antichrist. And again, what's going on here in this final week, this final seven years that we know as the Great Tribulation? Um, well, this is the, the suffering, if you will, these seven years of suffering for the nation of Israel will end with the return of Christ who will destroy the Antichrist forever. And we've already seen that in chapter 7, that Christ will come and destroy the Antichrist. We've seen it in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. But look at what it says here. It will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. It's talking about Jesus Christ coming. It's a veiled reference to the coming of Christ to conquer the Antichrist, and destroy him forever. In other words, you mess with my temple, right? I'm going to mess with you. And he comes back, and he sets things straight. Now, you can imagine, fast forward to the Great Tribulation, which I believe we won't be here for. Uh, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture that, that, that the church age really ends, if you will, at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, and that's really where God's focus returns to the nation of Israel. And much of what you see in the book of Revelation is focused on Israel and, and their salvation, uh, their persecution, their salvation, and the 144,000 witnesses. It's all about witnessing to the Jewish nation, and so it seems very Jewish. It seems very uh, um, mainly focused on Israel during the Tribulation, so that's one more reason why I believe that will be gone. But can you imagine, okay, for those tribulation saints, okay, there will be people, by the way, non-Jews, uh, who, who maybe are born during the tribulation or whatever, uh, or go into the tribulation, people that get saved, okay? After the rapture, there will be people still living on this earth who, who are not Jews, they'll get saved. And they'll be going through this time of, of persecution along with the, 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 the nation of Israel, and, and can you imagine, though, how this book, Daniel, and particularly these four verses, will be a huge source of encouragement and hope and comfort for them during that time? Um, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will, in, they will be enduring this fiery furnace. Why? For refusing to bow down and worship the image of the Antichrist. Well, again, this wasn't just written for the tribulation saints. You say, well, great, we're, we're out of here. So what? Big whoop to you. Why did you just waste all of our time telling us this? We won't even be here. 
Well, because guess what? We are here right now, and what does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about world history? What does this teach us about the coming of Christ, the imminent return of Christ? Listen, God has a timetable, a very specific, precise timetable for world history, and while we may not fully be able to understand it, and we may take a different theological view of things and how we choose to interpret these end times events, the bottom line is we can all land on the same truth and that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back at the exact time that God has decreed in the same way he came the first time at the exact time to the day. And so we know that God has a very specific timetable that he's working uh, according to. And, and we don't know specifically what that is. And that's why we say, hey, don't try to set dates and don't try to um, you know, recognize or say that's the Antichrist or you know, Donald Trump's the Antichrist. And, you know, don't, don't do that. We don't know that. Um, but we know that Jesus is coming back. And, and we know that those who don't know him as their Lord and Savior will be judged. And so now is the time of God's mercy. Now is the time to turn from your sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and get on his team. Because his team wins. And uh, the Lord is being gracious to give us time to reach our unsaved family members and friends and co-workers and classmates. And this is a time for evangelism. We shouldn't just be sitting here and, you know, you know with our, our little pencils and our calculators and, right? Like, okay, this is great. We, we need to understand this as best we can. But listen, what, what should this do? This should motivate us and say, you know what? There's lost people out there that I'm going to be rubbing shoulders with this week and they need to hear the gospel. And they need to be passionate about sharing Christ with them so that they can have the hope that I have. That while this world is just all messed up and, and who knows what's happened and is going to happen in this election year and all this kind of stuff, it's okay. It's okay because this is all working out according to God's precise timetable. And God will do what he will do because he's the God of history. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this time we've been able to look at a very challenging portion of your word, but I pray your spirit would just help us, Lord, to even maybe not get bogged down in the details, but really just be refreshed. I don't want anybody leaving here frustrated today, Lord, but just that we would leave here refreshed and excited to know that that you have this very precise, specific timetable that you are working according to, that, that you have everything under control. And we don't have anything to worry about, anything to be fearful of, um, except for the fact if we don't know Jesus Christ. And so I pray that those who may not be Christians in this room would feel compelled by your spirit this morning to repent and believe, Lord, so that they could be ready for the imminent return of your son, Jesus Christ. Even so come, we pray, Lord Jesus, amen.